This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with US-based artist Steve Lambert. Steve joined me in the studio to talk about his art practice and in particular his work, Capitalism Works For Me. True or false? It's showing through the Melbourne Fringe Festival. I'm really excited to have with me Steve Lambert, who is uh, a US-based artist. He is American, and um, don't hold that against him, of course, um, given Donald Trump and all the wonderful things going on there. He's um, a refugee in Australia at the moment. Um, no, he's not. He's a touring artist, and uh, he is joining me in the studio to talk about one of his wonderful works. Um, it's called Capitalism Works For Me! Exclamation mark true or false and it is actually touring Melbourne and Steve is with um, his artwork a lot of the time talking to Melburnians about this issue Um, and he's also uh, does a whole range of things like creating other artworks. He's also co-founder of the Centre for Artistic Activism which really does quite um, well summarise I guess what you're currently doing Steve. Thank you very much for joining me in the studio. Yeah, glad to be here. It's awesome to have you. And um, I was just telling you off air my first ever foray into knowing who you were, but I didn't actually realise who you were, um, was that one of my friends had bought actually your artworks um, printed on a website and it was about um, sex and it said... We have had sex in this room and, and it just kind of looks like it's hand-painted and it's framed and you put it in that room and then your guests presumably wander into the lounge room and it says, we have had sex in this room also. And then they maybe move into the kitchen and it says, yep, this one too. And I just thought that is the funniest thing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Like- I probably thought it was more funny when I was at college, as I was saying, because I literally did look around and think it probably every room has being utilized. Yes. Over the history of that home, probably. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I did that because I was selling artworks and I realized like, you know, the people that were buying them, all they had to do was write a check and I wanted them to have to sort of invest a little bit more. And in that case, it was honesty. (laughs) It is pretty honest because I'm sure, you know, people aren't that traditional, are they, that they only utilize a bit? You never know. Who knows what you goes know. on in a, in a someone else's house, which is what I just think is hilarious. <laughs> but let's get on to the political side of your work, sure. which is really awesome. Um, and one of the most striking parts of your work is that it draws on advertising imagery and signs and, and I guess calligraphy, typography. Right. And, and certainly it definitely makes it recognisable and somewhat attractive um, mm-hmm. because it's also drawing on advertising that's not necessarily from the ugly time of now where it's like contemporary and it's busy and it's there's not a nice aesthetic whereas you know some of these works particularly the one we're talking about you know it's like it's from another era it's that classic era where we probably think that things were a bit better right right yeah so there's a nostalgia part where people yeah. see it and they're like they there's a few things that it does. One is like makes people feel comfortable 
but the topic itself is uncomfortable, right? So mm. the aesthetic has to be really comfortable and attractive and then familiar, right? And it speaks a language that they understand. If if I talked in the language of fine art, you know, like you kind of need a little bit of background in that and have visited a few museums and you lose a lot of people. So advertising is very legible format for most of the population. And what I love about, and especially with the capitalism works for me sign is mm. people like it before they've read it. You know, it's it's only what four words, you know, but they they're standing back and they're like, oh, what's that? And then yeah. they get closer and they realize only later what they've gotten themselves into. Well, it's lit up as well. It's, yeah, it yeah. has that immediate, you know, your your eyes would be drawn to it based on just that. Alone. And it flashes in these mesmerizing patterns, too. So oh, people awesome. often end up sort of getting mesmerized, <laughs> you know, staring at it. And and also staring into their existential angst, which is whether capitalism, which they rely on for so many things, such as perhaps their iPhone or their, you know, laptop or whatever, um, you know, how many people really do stand back and examine whether it's working for them? I don't think we have the time in our everyday lives for that. And that's what's great about art is mm. it, create, it can create a space where we can kind of look at other perspectives, you know, and in the past, those were literally, you know, with Picasso, you've got other perspectives around the room, you know, and he's like trying to paint multiple perspectives at once. But this is the same thing, right? It's giving you a chance to sort of reflect, look at this from another perspective, evaluate it in a way that, um, you know, of course, not this station, but radio, TV, newspapers don't often do, which is just present the economic system as a given, right? Mm. Like, well, this is the market. The market is doing this as if it was its own thing that had a mind of its own. And then we all just adapt. But we live in a democracy and we can, you know, once we evaluate it, then we can say, all right, well, if this is working for these people and not working for these other people, what do we want to do? Do we want to change it, right? And we can change it instead of just accepting economics as this, you know, force that cannot be, you know, controlled at all. Exactly. And when I was thinking about the uniqueness of your work, it did make me think that I'm sure there are, and and I know some um, contemporary artists who are trying to deal with this issue in a range of ways, you know, doing direct representation of certain situations or being a bit more abstract or um, contemporary. And so sometimes an audience may attend an exhibition such as that and really have no idea immediately what the meaning is or what the topic is or how they're meant to engage with that issue. They might eventually, after pondering it for a bit longer or reading the wall decal if there's a description, but it's not instantly engaging or as accessible sometimes when things are a little bit more um, abstract or undefined. Yeah. And, you know, I I teach at a university, so I have to defend that kind of art to the student's parents when they make it, you know, like, (laughs) no, this is important and it's valuable and I can do it, but it's definitely not for me. Right. Yeah. I think um, there's a way that artists sort of um, what are they? It's like they look at the work and then they, or they're talking about the problem, but they're not actually doing anything about mm-hmm. it. And, you know, I'm not saying that the sign is going to end the capitalist system or something or result in concrete policy change, but it is a step in that direction, right? Yeah. And, it, and it involves people, them evaluating it and making a decision is the first step to them deciding, okay, maybe we need to change something. And there'll be other people and other works that hopefully follow up on that. Um, mm. But the kind of artwork that just sort of represents a problem to me can be really uh, 
debilitating for people, right? We, most people understand that there are massive issues going on in the world. We could go get on the bus and ask everyone, you know, like, do you think there are problems? And they'll say, mm. yes, you know. Um, so pointing out and, you know, as a lot of artists say, like raising awareness about an issue, um, that's like the lowest hanging fruit. And to yeah. me, the, the harder thing is, okay, once people are aware, and I, I would argue that most people are, what do they do about it, you know? Well, they leave the gallery, remember it for a little time, and maybe they do or maybe they don't do something, but it's probably more like sign a petition or... Well, in a lot of cases, I think they leave depressed. Yeah. And, and with the same feeling I was saying before of like, well, this is really screwed up. And it's a huge issue that like, how yeah. does one person and, make change? And then globalizing that to like, well, the world is kind of screwed up and then just turning inward, right? Like, mm -hmm. so I'm just going to focus on me and what I can do and get to that yoga class later and try to feel better. Not that that's wrong, but, you know, we all have to cope. Yeah. But it, it turns inward, right? Instead of saying, okay, well, here's this issue. We all realize, that, you know, or many people realize this is a problem. We've raised that. Now, what are we going to do? And I try mm -hmm. to bring that up in the conversations that I have with people in front of the sign. It's like, all right, so, you know, some people say, oh, it works for me. I, you know, older, older man, I've had one job my whole life. I'm retired. I own, own property here in Melbourne. You know, mm -hmm. they're set and it has definitely worked for them. And I'll say, that's great. Congratulations. You are among this half, you know, this half of the population, but you can see the other half it hasn't worked for. And they've, they're also working really hard. Mm -hmm. So we'll what can we do? And then you start um, getting into like a more productive conversation instead of just realizing all the problems in the world and getting bummed out. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy to get bummed out about all the problems in the world. Yes. Yeah. 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 When you talk to passers-by who, you know, Nick McClellan, who was just in here, said he saw your work outside the State Library of Victoria. There was a huge line yep. to participate. When you have that interaction with people, what are some of the responses that people have when they're conflicted or a bit um, confused or on the fence? Because I'm guessing there are some people who would say, yes, it works for me, but I can see it also doesn't work for me in other ways. And then there's that whole other issue of it doesn't work for a lot of other people that aren't right. me. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways you can interpret it. And, and people often will say like, I, I don't, I want a third button, you know, <laughs> or I want 10 buttons and I want to be able to pick but because there's only two and they have to pick true or false they often when they whichever one they choose they'll go back and forth because they everyone kind of lands somewhere in the middle except for a few yeah and in the going back and forth they feel compelled to speak about it so the the fact that they only have two choices is what makes them talk mm. and the line actually the line isn't waiting to participate the line is part of participating yeah you know it starts yep. as soon as they see it and um, we have like uh, groups of people that will go and say you know sort of explain what the sign is and then say you know in your life do you think capitalism is working for you yeah and they're um i work with them to help ask these probing questions right that because a lot of people immediately will have a reaction of like, no, no, it doesn't at all. And I'll say, well, hang on a sec, you know, like you're here in Melbourne. What do you do for a living? You know, and kind of talk it through a bit um, and get them to a more thoughtful place. Right. Yeah. What they press in the end does not matter to me. Um, it's the what I love is when they get to the podium and they're like, all right, do you know what you want to do? And then I'll say something and they're like, oh, wait, I'm not sure what I'm going to press now, you know, because they've, <laughs> yeah. and they've, that might be the third time that that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. It is really interesting. Just 
what you're really raising here is how often do people critically reflect upon their own circumstances or think in a more uh, big picture way in terms of major movements or issues. Like, for example, in Australia, you know, we've recently had discussions about neoliberalism and when is it that, that when's that going to end you know has it already died is it still living you know i'm yeah. sure it's a lot more alive in america um particularly with the advent of donald trump though he's very populist so you know there's confliction right. around his policies and his viewpoints at every turn but you know we have seen that discussion but that's because you know for example a person released an essay and then we have a discussion but it seems that these discussions happen in bubbles or they're segmented and you don't have that general population discussion which I think is what your work is doing because it's out in public in areas that have high foot traffic that would engage with people who would never really perhaps want to think about or just think about this issue. Yeah I don't think it uh, enters onto their radar and what What's unfortunate about that is that most people's understanding of capitalism is what people in power would prefer, which is this is not something for you. This is not something you have control over. This is not something. This is just boring. And it's just a, a, a like it's like the weather. Right. Like, you know, oh, there's a storm coming. There's like a high pressure thing here. Right. It's uncontrollable. And it just happens. There's a recession. Why did the recession happen? Oh, so there's some bad behavior, you know, like it's all very vague. Um, And the idea that we could have control over the economy or any input as regular people is not what powerful people would prefer you to understand. Mm. Um, But it's true. And this is especially true in the United States. You know, like my favorite definition of socialism is democratic control of the economy. Right. Um, We are taught that democracy, I mean, it's not overtly taught, it's a subtext, but that democracy and capitalism are intertwined. Right. Mm. And there's some truth to you can't have a developed capitalist society and, and have it really closed. They tend to be open liberal societies in that, you know, liberal of meaning open. Yeah. But uh there's a point where that keeps going in the development where it becomes really unproductive. It becomes environmentally destructive. It it turns into the kinds of things we've seen in the U S you've seen in Australia around, you know, turning on immigration and and deciding that these outsiders are, are, are coming to get us and destroy our uh, livelihood and things like that. You know, all these things are connected. I mean, I think there's connections even to the opioid crisis in the U S. So, yeah. So you have, you know, there's a way that, capitalism develops uh, uh, a place. And, and, you know, I say that with hesitance, but I think it is true. Mm -hmm. And then you need to sort of move on. Then you need to figure out ways of like bringing that economy back into control so that it doesn't go into neoliberalism. Yeah. Well, this is an important thing that you point out. I mean, if you think if capitalism doesn't work, for example, I'm guessing perhaps some people in America might say, oh, well, what are we going to be, socialists? You know, if- Oh, that gets said here too. Really? Yes. And, Fascinating. Or like, well, what's the alternative? You know, Stalin, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I always like cut people off. I'm like, the question is not whether or not capitalism is better than a socialist dictatorship or mm. a communist totalitarian state. That is an easy question. The question is, does capitalism work for you? And if not, what do we want to do about mm. it? 
right? And if it doesn't work for so many people, what do we want to do about it? That does not mean nobody is going to say, like, let's start a <laughs> socialist dictatorship no. where all of us will be oppressed and starve. Exactly. No. And I think something that has really declined in popularity is particularly Europe's embracement of social democracy, which was to really rein in market forces and Mm -hmm. distribute more equally, um, you know, wealth when it was created by business. That has, you know, was really an important foundation of Australia at some point, mostly in um, the UK and Europe. And it's not really anymore. And I know there are lots of people trying to bring back a bit of a resurgence. And there's also a degrowth Mm -hmm. movement, which is to say, why do we have to keep growing? Can we just, you know, be sustainable and live sustainably? Are they some of the potential different ways of doing things? Yeah. And I have, I mean, we could talk about that. I have like issues with the degrowth thing. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the, the progress, like we do need to progress. We do need to grow, but in a way that can sustain the lives of the millions of people that exist on the earth mm. and that there is, there does need to be like a big movement forward instead of backwards. Right. Um, I'm, you know, big science fiction fan in that way and, and a utopian sort of thinker um, in the best ways, I think, yeah. that lead us towards those kinds of solutions. But um, yeah, you know, like I think those are ways. And, and but again, my point with the sign is not, you know, people are like, well, what is the alternative? And mm. sometimes I joke around like, well, I have this book and I like reach down <laughs> like I'm good. I have this giant book for them to Steve read. Steve Lambert's manifesto. Yeah, I don't have that. I don't have Nobody has the perfect plan. If we had that plan and it was obvious, we would do it, mm. right? So we need to figure that out. And we're not going to figure it out without being able to evaluate the economic system we have. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Steve, I just want to also touch on some of your other works. I did see, I can't remember where I saw this now, um, but you were holding a sign and I think it was at an AIDS conference. Yeah. And you were talking about pharma. And I, obviously many people would know that it's like big pharma, these huge pharmaceutical companies. And then there's mom and pop pharma. Yeah, of no, course, I, you know, just homegrown <laughs> marijuana. I think it's kind of all big pharma now. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but, um, but, uh, it really struck me because you were talking about, you know, farmers taking over our conversation or our activism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hadn't even really thought about the role of pharmaceutical companies in things like, you know, the AIDS epidemic and crisis. Right, right. So I was yeah. working with uh, uh, ACT UP. Uh, or no, sorry. Now, I'm going to remember their name in a minute. Um, but working with the few groups that are working on hep C and, um, and AIDS prices of medication, right? Mm. And we were at the AIDS conference, which is like the biggest health-related conference in the world. And the sign that we had, uh, had and I would hold up in lines, I would just find a line and hold up next line and yeah. say, line up here if you're afraid that pharma stole the movement, right? Mm. Or, and then we had another thing that you could choose whether or not you think pharma or global funders were more responsible for the current crisis. And the reason is that pharma, like their prices for medication are just accepted. And then the problem becomes like, well, how do we pay for this? Yeah. Will the government subsidize, yeah. in Australia's example, certain medications? Right. And, the, and if they don't, people die. Right. And like no one should die because medication's unaffordable. And so letting pharma have too much control over that conversation, you know, if you're the nation of Australia and you're buying medication in bulk, you can negotiate, right? Yeah. And so one of the things we did was have a negotiation class for people <laughs> that had to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. And it was basically look them in the eye, 
say your price is too high and then that's it. And then when they, whatever they say next, look them in the eye, say your price is too high, right? (laughs) Because they often don't negotiate. No. Yeah. And people wouldn't think to. Perhaps it's not necessarily culturally ingrained as it is in some other nations that bartering is their main way of doing business. Yeah. You've got a big company like Pfizer or Merck or something and to say, well, you know, we don't want to pay that. It's not like you're buying a used car, but it's much more like that than you'd ever expect, right? Mm. You're buying millions of treatments. You can say, look, we, we, we want to pay $10, you know, and then just see what happens. And they do negotiate prices around the world. Yeah. No, it's really, it's fascinating stuff. Um, it's great to chat with you, Stephen. Welcome back to Melbourne. It's great to have you back. I like being here. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Don't be a stranger. I'll do what I can. <laughs> I've been speaking speaking with Steve Lambert, who is an American artist. He's an activist artist, and he's also uh, the co-founder of the Center for Artistic Activism. And he's uh, works in a university, teaching our wonderful art students how to do great art as well. So that is also very heartening to hear. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.